what I want to do today is talk about the natural born condition of our heart and how we need to care for our heart because of the condition of our heart and how that relates to the home and how that relates to ministry. And I want to do that by just reading scripture and having us think about the scripture from the perspective of having cared for your heart or having not cared for your heart and how different those two things would be. The true condition of our heart is that our heart is deceitful. It's more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick, and who can understand it? We find that in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. What that means is that there is nothing here, there is nothing around us that's more adept and that's more skilled and more capable in deceiving us than our own hearts. Because my heart is so skilled and so capable at deceiving me, I need to care for my heart intentionally. And I need to guard my heart from all of the appeals in this world. And the women have a theme verse in Wellspring, and it's one that serves women and men very well. And it says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. And the way we watch over our heart is to inform our heart with truth from God's word. And the truth is only found in God's word. Jesus says that in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. So we have hearts that are are deceitful, but we have to watch over our heart. The only way we watch over our heart is by counseling our heart with God's word. And the benefit of allowing God's word to speak into our heart is that we live a life that becomes increasingly pure. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I treasured in my heart, I've treasured it in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And the first place we take that purity, when we've treasured God's word, is into our home. This is the most important place where we have to live out the shepherding of our heart. And we need a properly counseled heart to do this well. So what I want to do is I want to read, I guess, four different scriptures and want us to just think about what this would look like if we are counseling our heart well and if we're not counseling our heart well. These have to do with the relationships that are in the home. And these are instructions. I just want us to think about that well. The first is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just think about how genuine your love for your wife is when your heart is well counseled by God's word. It's well cared for by God's word. And think about what your love for your wife looks like when your heart is not counseled well from God's word. Just a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul talks to the church in Ephesus about the relationship that a father must have with his kids. And he says, Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. If you're a father and you're sitting here, you've you've certainly had the opportunity to discipline and to instruct your kids. Think about how that works when your heart is well counseled. Your discipline comes and it's loving and it is kind and it is for their good. It is patient. When your heart is not well counseled and you're disciplining your kids, it's because you've been offended and because you're angry and you're out of control. You're not using self-control. And then that provokes your kids to anger when you, when you discipline and when you instruct and train your kids that way. The relationship between roommates, um, think about this. Romans 12.10, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. 
it's, it's easy to give preference to one another when you're counseling your heart well. It's easy to care for your roommates well. It's easy to make up for their missteps or their oversights in your home when they're counseling your heart well with God's word. But when you're not, it's easy to get offended. It's easy to keep a record of wrongs. If you're engaged, um, how genuine is your preference for your fiancé when you counsel your heart well? It's genuine biblical preference for your fiancé when you counsel your heart well. When you don't counsel your heart well with God's word, you're led by other things. And one more relationship, that's with any of us in this room, if we have older, aging parents. First uh, Timothy chapter 5 speaks to that. Verse 4 says, Children must learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return for their parents. This is a, a passage that's dealing with widows that are older and how the family is the, the first line of provision and first line of support for those widows as they get older. For that, that's First Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. And if you think about that, and I'm living this myself as I watch my parents get older, um, the instruction here is that we learn to practice piety in regard to our own family, that, that we care for our, our elderly parents with a holiness of heart and a, and a love that, that's motivated by the gospel. And we can only do that when we're counseled well by God's word. Um, if we don't, we're doing this out of obligation. We're doing it because our parents need it. Or in my case, we're doing it because it's more convenient for me to get there than my sisters because they live farther away. It is so important in every one of these relationships that whether it's a spousal relationship or a parent-child relationship or a parent-to-parent relationship um, or a roommate relationship, it is so important that we counsel our heart because we cannot live out the instructions of Scripture if we don't. So that's the second of our disciplines is the heart, and the third is our ministry. God's design is that the man who is is well-disciplined in his heart and he's well-disciplined in his home, that is the man who is well-equipped and he's ready to step into ministry. And um, increasingly around our our body, I've I've heard Ephesians 4, 16 quoted. We we quote the beginning of the verse and we quote the end of the verse and it's very accurate and it's that the body causes the growth of the body. I just want to read the whole verse so you can see the parts that are moving in this. This is Ephesians 4.16. The whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The body causes the growth of the body. Just think about that word picture there. You've you've got a healthy body with with well-maintained joints and ligaments and tissues and tendons. It's functioning well. It's, it's functioning according to its natural design when, when your body's well-maintained. And the same thing happens in the church. Um, when we maintain ourselves well, we maintain our own heart, we maintain our own home, we bring ourselves into this, this body, into this context here, we are ready to function well as a church. Um, and that's what we need to be when we're, we're ready to do this, uh, especially at the leadership level. Paul tells Paul tells the church in Corinth, in Corinth in chapter 11 of his first letter, he says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. And the idea there is that the body is going to be following the man and uh, that it's incumbent on that man to be one who's counseled himself well. He's only imitatable well when he, he counsels his heart well and when he, he lives well in his home. Our fourth discipline is the qualifications. They're in 1 Timothy 3. 
verses 8 through 13. This is a really good passage to read through periodically but regularly just to keep them in front of you. The idea of being a man who's not of a double tongue, being a man who's a good manager of his home and the other things. That's what we want to pursue here in this discipline. Discipline five is the hermeneutic. And um, I want to read a passage from from a, a guy who's one of my heroes in the Old Testament. And he's not spoken of very often. He doesn't get a lot of ink and press, but but he lives out in Discipline 5 very well, and it's, it's Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we read that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and his ordinances to the people in Israel. So we have Ezra setting his heart to study. You see four of the six disciplines here. He's, he's studying his heart, which is kind of discipline one, to study, which is discipline five, and he's practicing it in his own life, in his own home, which is more like disciplines one and two, and he's teaching it in ministry and discipline three. Could you expound what it looks like to set your heart to study God's word? Yeah. He has a right understanding of, of what God's word is for. God's word is to point our affections and our, our love at God. It's not to maintain a knowledge. It's to be understood so that we can live it out in the context which we live. Ezra had the task of leading Israel after they came back from the exile. And his knowledge of the word could not simply be an intellectual knowledge. He had to be one that lived it out because he was surrounded by a bunch of people who had who had forsaken God's instruction not to intermarry. And so he had to be living it out in his own life. And he, he, he had to love the law first so that he could live it out, so his life could be an example to the, the fallen people around him. And lastly, this is the, the vision and the purpose of, of Grace Bible Church. We go through this every time. Our vision is, is that we prize the glory of God. We celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. And when the cross of Jesus Christ is applied to somebody, um, there's a transforming work that the Holy Spirit does in our life, and we live that out. Um, one verse that's really helpful for me to keep in front of as I look at all of this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. It says, To God be the glory in the church and in Christ and to all generations forever and ever. We attend this church, and this church is one of the greatest ways that God brings glory to himself is in the local church uh, when we're functioning well, when we're guys that, that shepherd our heart and we're well-disciplined in our home, when we have a biblical ministry, when we study well, when we function well, when we're pursuing deacon qualifications. And it all results in a church that functions to the glory of God. So that's what our disciplines are. Keep those in front of you, um, as we always do, and that's that. Today what we get to do is uh, move from Discipline 1 into Discipline 2, and there's uh, at least one passage in Scripture, if not many passages in Scripture, that uh, show the seamlessness between these two disciplines, that, that these are the idea that you would love God, pursue God through His Word, and impact your household um, that's God's idea, and so it comes out in Scripture everywhere. Probably the, the first place and best place it does is in Deuteronomy 6. So 
You can get your notes if you don't have one off the back table back over there uh, and, and also open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. While you're doing that, I want to remind you um, on the schedule, March 8th is a... Well, I don't even know what day that of, of the month that is. Saturday. Is it a Saturday? It is a Saturday. It's a Saturday after Shepherd's Conference. It's a Saturday after Shepherd's Conference. What we usually do during the week of Shepherd's Conference, Shepherd's Conference is a conference at John MacArthur's church out in L.A. Um, we just try to encourage as many guys, many of you who would want to go to that as possible. But the challenge with it is it's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday during the week. Um, so it requires, obviously, if you work, uh, some making some different arrangements. Uh, there's also an expense in, in that, you know, the conference itself and then a hotel or if you've got friends out there that you know or can stay in, that's great. But we would we would love for as many of you guys to go as want to go can go. Um, you can get on shepherdsconference.org, uh, the website, and register yourself. If you do register yourself, Please let Allie know or me know because then what we do is is we get a, a block of rooms in a hotel not far from there and we go, uh, we all stay together, we all go together. Now, if you like, if you knew somebody out there and you were going to stay at their house, you don't have to, you know, obviously stay with us. But we, we try to keep together and have meals together as much as possible. It's just a great time to be together. So I want to put that out in front of you. And if you have any need for some financial help on that, would you let me know? Because we would not want that to be an obstacle for you. Uh, it's a sacrifice to miss work. Um, and then on top of that, to pay for a conference and then pay for a hotel room. Uh, you, you can stay with up to four guys in a room and get real cozy and, and cut your costs quite a bit as you split it four ways. Um, or not. Ryan. Oh yeah, get a home. Yeah. 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 If anybody wants to even pursue that and consider that and, and get some guys, we can certainly do that. Um, you'll probably need to do that within the next probably two weeks so you can get them, or just as soon as whatever it takes for them to reserve it for you. In fact, we have a family who goes and they stay out there. Matt and Cameron do that. And they stay in a home and use that. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. Um, so put that on your calendar. Think about that. If you if you would like to go but you think uh, the money side might be an obstacle for you, will you just talk to me and uh, we can we can uh, see if we can work out some arrangements. We can do a number of anything. We can we can do a scholarship. We can do a, a payment plan. If you want to pay back over the next year, you can do that so that cause that's more manageable. Um, at no interest even. Um, we can we can do that for you. So just come and talk to me, all right? Can you do a payday loan? Or a payday loan. <laughs> we are looking for a facility, and we do need some money, so that's not a bad idea. So if you want to do that, talk to Tom. <laughs> no, Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right. Well, let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Father, thank you for this, uh, the privilege of having your word in front of us. Thank you for the, the chance to be together and to study it, to look at it. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to um, just have reinforced in our hearts and minds um, the discipline of pursuing you from the heart with love, with your word, and the impact it needs to make on a household. 
um, our households. We, we need you for this. We do not trust in our own understanding, our own insights, Lord. We, we turn from our own insights, and we want your Spirit's insight. So help us as we look at your word. Change us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read verses, I'll, uh, yeah, read verses 1 to 9 for us. Now this is the commandment. Moses is on the plains of Moab. Uh, this is the, the last bit of time in the wilderness before they head into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is, is literally the second law. It's the second giving of the law. It's, it's reiterating much of the law. And this is part of his exhortation to Israel. He says, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, well, to help you understand Deuteronomy, uh, there's a got a quote here from Thompson uh, this is a strong covenantal setting. Um, Moses is going to over and over remind them that Israel is in a covenant with God. He made a covenant with them in the wilderness, um, and he is uh, committed to them. He's the great king. He's the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they became his people. Now, uh, just a reminder for you of the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant had a beginning, and the Mosaic Covenant had an end. Okay, The Abrahamic Covenant obviously had a beginning, it had to have a beginning, and it continues without an end. The Mosaic Covenant is underneath the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant bows to and submits to the Abrahamic Covenant. What's important about the Abrahamic Covenant? God said to Abraham in, in Genesis 15, or it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's the Abrahamic covenant. It is righteousness imputed to you, credited to your account on the basis of not works, not good deeds, but faith and faith alone. And you can see where that is the theme of the Bible. It runs from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. Then, long after Genesis 15, and the, as the covenant was, was made with Abraham, long after that, then comes Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant was a, a, a set of rules and conditions 
for a people called Israel. It was given to them. And it was given to them and it was tied and drilled into and fastened into a land. A lot of those rules and the stipulations don't even make sense on a tropical island somewhere or in the Himalayas somewhere. They're tied to the specific kind of land that they would be in, in Palestine. So the Mosaic Covenant came along for a group of people within Abrahamic Covenant after that. It had a beginning, Mosaic Law did, and it had an end. Underneath the Abrahamic Covenant, there's another set of regulations that have come about. It's Christ's law for us in the church. It had a beginning at Pentecost, and it is continuing and will continue through the church age. So I want to help have you understand and not get confused that the Mosaic Covenant is the same thing as the Abrahamic Covenant. And you'll especially see here later that the Mosaic Covenant is not given so that Israel could be saved. Laws were not given so that they would obey them and God would give favor to them and save them. The Abrahamic Covenant was what was supposed to do that. Okay, So I want you to understand those two things. All right. Here's a basic outline for you of the book, so you kind of have a sense of where we're at. You can see each section broken down. Chapter 6 is found in that third part down, the covenant life. It occurs um, right after the reiteration of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. So this has to do with covenant life for Israel. What should life look like as you're in covenant with God? Deuteronomy 6 starts it all off. It's very important um, after the Ten Commandments. Um, and look at verse 4 in particular. We'll pick it up there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, you have three points to the outline today. One is the introductory matters that we're still kind of working through. The second point of the outline today is going to be discipline one. And the third point of the outline is discipline two. So we're going to deal with some introductory matters here, then discipline one, and then discipline two in these passages. The heart and then the home. Okay? So let's talk still about this uh, introductory part here so we can get introduced to the God of Israel. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is our God, Moses says to Israel. Yahweh is one. Hear this, O Israel. The closer that Israel will draw to Yahweh their God, the warmer their affections will be for Him, the more lively their affections and obedience will uh, be to Him, uh, the more lively their service to Yahweh will be. Israel must stay close to this God, Moses is leading them to see. Um, they can't drift from him. They will be a lifeless nation like all of the other lifeless nations around them. Verse 4 is often called the Shema. Uh, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, to hear. Um, and it's an imperative. Israel, hear this. And, it, and the idea of hearing with this is not what you and I would say to one another. We would often say, did you hear that? And, and what we mean is, did the sound penetrate your ear and resonate and make you think about it? Um, that's not what's being said here. That would be very superficial. This is, I, I hear with the intent to obey. It includes, uh, the idea of hearing here, it includes the intent to hear it, to live under it, and to order your life around what Yahweh is, who Yahweh is and what he says. Um, 
Merrill has this quote that I wanted to put in for you. To hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey. So when you see hear, O Israel, it's like Moses is saying to Israel, obey this. Submit to this. Especially in, in a covenant context such as this. That is, and I, I love this, to hear God without putting into effect the command is really to not have heard him at all. Okay, do you understand that? That's what's being said here. And so this, this hearing with the intent to obey, that is in the light of everything that Yahweh has done for them. Okay, first off, Israel is um, the offspring, is the seed of Abraham. What did God do? He gave them that Abrahamic covenant. Okay? They are to be a nation that says we are to believe and trust in Yahweh and on the basis of that trust, that faith, we have been credited with righteousness. That was supposed to be the overarching covering umbrella over that nation Israel. Then what God did for them after that in His grace is He... When they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, he redeemed them and made them his unique people out in the wilderness. This covenant setting with Mosaic law is in light of those two things. Salvation by faith alone, you'll be credited with righteousness, God forming them and drawing them out of Egypt, making them their own special people, and now hear God and obey him. It is not hear God and obey Him and watch what He'll do for Him because you got Him to turn His head in favor to see you. I, I just want to make sure that you really understand this because we can easily get caught up in like thinking, well, the Old Testament is about doing good things and, and that pleases God and we can get down a, a train of thinking that we shouldn't even get. And so I want you to make sure that you understand this in its setting. It was salvation by, uh, through faith by grace alone for them Credited as, as righteousness to them, God redeems them as a people, um, then makes a covenant with them and says, Obey me. Do you guys understand that? A nod of the head will, will prevent me from doing that one more time with you. I'll do it as many times as we need to. But if you nod, then I go, Oh, they got it, so I don't need to say it one more time. Okay, good, let's move on. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, so what, what, what we're saying is, is underneath Israel is a foundation of grace. It's supposed to be that way. That does not mean that every single Israelite personally entrusted their life to Yahweh. But underneath them, God was gracious and said, Believe me, and I will credit to you as righteousness. And so... This is not a hear with the intent to obey so that they earn his favor. It is a call to those who were supposed to be believers in Yahweh already. But many of them weren't. Okay? Listen closely for the purpose of obedience. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, the Old Testament is the story of how this people who should have believed him and been declared righteous on the basis of faith alone, the Old Testament is the story of how they should have been that but, but didn't. And, and their own laws condemned them as those who were not believers. 
and who were not lovers of Yahweh. Um, and so they were convicted by their own law. And as you get to you know what Paul says to them in, in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39 that we looked at, um, through him, through Jesus, uh, their forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things that you could not be freed from in the law of Moses. In other words, Israel became a nation that when they recognized that they were disobedient to God, the place they did not run to first was, I need to believe him. The place they ran to first was, give me those laws, I'll obey them, and then I'll show you. I'll establish my own self-righteousness. And so that's that's what the Bible is about, and you'll see that here uh, in a moment. So yeah, it... We should not make the assumption that all of Israel was saved because they were children of Abraham. No. Hello. I mean, what did Jesus tell them in in the Gospels? Don't say, well, we're sons of Abraham. Don't count on that. You have to believe. You can't just be a physical descendant. You must be a believer as Abraham was a believer. So Israel here in the great Shema here has to be determined to align themselves with God and His ways. And this principle of foundation of grace um, and then an intent to obey is runs all throughout the Bible. It's even true for us in the church. Look at James chapter 1. I want you to see this. Very important. James chapter 1, verse 22. You, you know this passage. James is writing to believers. And he says in James 1, verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's a great New Testament parallel to the Israel hear Yahweh. Another way of saying it is, that means you're going to be a doer of the word, not just merely a hearer who heard it, but then you delude yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, with the intent to obey. That's Israel's version of a foundation of grace, and then here come the commandments to obey. The New Testament version of that for the church, with a foundation of grace underneath us, we believe and it's credited to us as righteousness. James 1 is the parallel to the Old Testament idea. Back to Deuteronomy 6. And this is what's really important to understand. There's discontinuity in the Bible, and there's continuity in the Bible. There are some things that are discontinuous in the Bible. They start, and at some point they end, and they don't continue on. And there are some things that are always continuous in the Bible. There's discontinuity in regards to the people of God. Israel had this set of laws over them called Mosaic Law. We are the church, we are not Israel, and we do not have Mosaic Law over us. We have the law of Christ over us. Now, when something is discontinued, and we'll talk about this when we get into hermeneutics later uh, this this, um, semester here, when something is discontinued, it is only to accent and glorify Christ. The only reason God would bring something to an end is because it would glorify Christ for doing so. But then there are some things that are continuous in the Bible. 
like God's heart, that, and plan, that grace is the foundation, and then commands are given to those who have grace. Okay? That was the way it was supposed to be for those who believed in Israel, and that's the way it is for us. So some things never change in the Bible. Some things do change in the Bible. And both of them glorify Christ. Okay? All right. So Deuteronomy 6.4 is probably the most potent and succinct summary of who Yahweh is up to this point in the Bible. Uh, It'd be like saying, Moses, if you could summarize who God is, how would you say it? And he says it this way. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Um, If you drop down to um, the quote I have there from McIntosh, all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction in this structure. It points to the uniqueness and the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the unity of God is stressed. God's distance from the invented deities of the nations is being stressed. Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of Him is stressed. The gods of the, of the Canaanites were, were, were like these schizophrenic gods. They were really pleased with you, or they were really angry with you. And this God is one. He's not like two gods in terms of he's one way one time and another way another time. No, he is united in his being. There's no schizophrenia within him. And he is their unique God. He is the one and only God. Singled out and different from all the others. Why is this so important to say at this point? Put yourself in where... Israel is, they're on the plains of the wilderness of Moab, getting ready to to cross over the Jordan and come and Joshua will lead them in to take over Jericho and other places. Why is this so important to say right now? I want you to think with me here. What's behind Israel? Where have they been? Where were they? Where did they come from? They were in Egypt for 400 plus years. And then they've been in the wilderness for about 40 years. What's in front of them? Canaan. The, the, the Canaanite tr- nations are there. You have all of the gods of Egypt behind them. You have all of the gods of, of the promised land, of the, of, the, of the nations, the seven different nations that are there. Why is this important? To say right now as they stand, they can turn back and look at where they came from. They can look forward to where they're headed. Why do they need to have this said to them now? Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Um, I want to show you what God found when he went to Egypt and took them out. And you don't go to Exodus to find it out. You have to go to Ezekiel. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 20 for just a moment. This is so important. It's very insightful also to help you understand the kind of people that Moses is talking to. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. God waited all the way until Ezekiel to to reveal some information about what he found in Israel when he went to go get them in Egypt. Verse 5. Say this to them. God says to Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had uh, selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. 
I said to them, when did he say this to them? When he was in Egypt talking to them. God said, cast away, verse 7, each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, what did Israel have in Egypt? Idols. They were an idolatrous people in Egypt. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know that? God was ready to finish them off in Egypt. But I acted, verse 9, for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. I also gave them Sabbaths to be a sign between me um, and, and them, and they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness, to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. I also swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Wait a minute, what, what, what did they have with them in the wilderness? Idols. So what did they have in Egypt? Idols. What did they have while they were in the wilderness? Idols. Yet my eye, verse 17, spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. So why is it important for Moses to say this in Deuteronomy 6? Yahweh is the only one! Hear this, Israel! What is he saying? He knows what they've got hidden in their tents. They're an idolatrous people. They just can't help it. Now, let's fast forward for a moment getting a little Israelology here. I want you to go to um, Joshua chapter 24. So right after the book of Deuteronomy, you got Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Let's go into the promised land. Now, does anybody want to make a, 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 a guess here? Let, let's back up. What, when they were in Egypt, what did they have with them? Idols. When they came into the wilderness, what did they have with them still? Idols. Now we're in the promised land. We're at the end of Joshua 24. Does anybody want to make a guess as to what Joshua is going to find and say? Okay. Yeah, you guys are pretty sharp. Yeah. Do you know what this was? What their idols would be? Just because I'm thinking, who doesn't have idols? So. Yeah, the sun god of Egypt. You don't want to have that one. So you're good. I wouldn't worry. I, I heard this definition once of idolatry, and I, I, I like it. Um, idolatry is worshiping is is a taking a, a desire of the heart and projecting it to something and worshiping it. So it could be a stone. So in other words, they, they had they had a sun god, they had a rain god. Why? Because they had a desire to eat. 
and be filled. And so they made an idol to represent their desire. And they worshipped it. Um, We do this in our day, but not with stone idols or iron ones, or we don't carve out of a log and roast half of it in a fire and worship down and fall down before it and say, my God. We do it with uh, money, comfort, things like that. We just don't make a physical form for it oftentimes. So um, I, I, could t- I, could, I don't even know what all the idols are for the Canaanites. I mean, there's Moloch, there was Baals, there were all of those things. And those wouldn't even be helpful for us to think about because we would say, we could easily check off, well, I don't worship Moloch. I don't make my children pass through the fire and burn them. Um, you know. But what we need to look at is idolatry is in our hearts ever as much as it was in, in Israel's. The way it manifests itself is different. Kyle. You know what's interesting is I, I don't I don't know exactly what it was for Israel. I mean, obviously they had commandments that dealt with this. Don't make any graven image of God. Worship only God. And yet they did this over. It, what's interesting is what finally appears to have kind of rid the nation of Israel of that is exile. When they went to Babylon and when they were scattered and synagogues are formed, by the time you get to the New Testament, they're not worshiping idols anymore. They're worshiping, and I put quotes around worshiping, they they are loyal at one sense as a nation to only God. And they are are disgusted with the Romans, and they are disgusted with the others, the Greeks. They, they, They are only focused on Yahweh, and they do not have idols. What was it exactly? I don't know what it was, but it, it was definitely in the exile period in the formation of synagogues and, and whatnot. It's very interesting that they pretty much graduated from making the idols. Now, were the priests of the, and the rulers of the temple still idolatrous? Yeah, they power. They had power over that temple. Um, the, they could not put on their priestly garments unless Rome went to Caesarea, unlocked a room, took the priestly garments out and gave them to the priests. The, the, the Romans gave permission to the, the ruling council of 70 elders to run the temple. So they didn't want Jesus to take that away from them. So they're, they're in a sense following Rome. But they don't have idols set up like they did in the Old Testament. Still as idolatrous as ever. But um, yeah, that's what seems to change. Tom? Do you think though? Just for everybody to know what I'm saying is coming from a Roman Catholic background, yeah. I mean, we pray to statues. That's all true. Types of statues. Yeah. Uh, although here we are in this season of life, our idols are, like you said, funny. Could be a spouse, could be kids, could be whatever. But I remember as a kid, you, you pray. I still know people that will bury a statue of Joseph upside down in the front yard because that was what their house sell. Yeah. You know, that it's just, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're very capable of it. It's not that we're not capable of it anymore. We're very capable of it. Um, Yeah. Let's let's look at Joshua 24. Watch this. Verse, Verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Um, Now, we don't have time to talk about the significance of Shechem, but... What happened at Shechem long ago, here's the, 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 the summary. 
Jacob has all of his family. He's come back from serving Laban, and he's come back to the land, uh, back to where Isaac had raised him. He comes back, and he stops at the oak tree in Shechem, and he tells all of his clan, I want every idol. And he dug a hole underneath the oak at Shechem, and he said, I want all the idols in here. So he even brought out with him the idols from beyond the river, as you'll see here. Uh, all of Jacob's family did. They were always idolatrous, even before Egypt. Okay, That's all anybody could be. Um, and he buried them all. And so Joshua, as a, as, a, as, a, as a reminder, as a signal to the people, when he says, everybody at Shechem, what would they have remembered? Oh, that's the place where we got rid of our idols a long time ago. I wonder why we're going back. Okay, So he orders them to go to Shechem. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. What kind of man could God pick to single out to work and to form a nation? The only kind of man available any place on the whole earth was an idolater. So he picked one. His name was Abraham. They worshipped idols beyond the river. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants, and gave him um, Isaac. Now look at, um, drop down to verse 14. You know this part. Now therefore, he's saying this to Israel in the promised land. Fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What? They still have those idols from beyond the river that Abraham and Terah had. They're still, they will not give them up. And they still got the ones from Egypt. And they're in the promised land and he's calling them, put them away. Verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 23, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, go, go back to Deuteronomy 6. Hear this, Israel. Yahweh is our God. Not those other gods. And Yahweh is one. He is the only one. He is the one-of-a-kind God above all other gods. I, wanna, I wanted to pause and take time so you understand what's going on, why this was important to say to Israel, an, an idolatrous people. If they will stay near to this God, there's hope for them to have fullness of life as a, as a people, as a nation, in covenant with Him. And then, I love this, as we transition to number two, uh, which is our discipline one, the heart. What's the first thing on the mind of Yahweh for this people that he wants to listen to them. What's the first thing on his mind? Verse 5. Love. Love me, Yahweh says. That's the first thing on God's mind to them. Love me. Love that consumes your whole inner man. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This God is totally unique. You know what? The gods of Egypt, the gods of the Amorites, the god of the Canaanites and Philistines and Hittites never communicated to their devotees this request. Love me. 
No other idol God ever communicates that. In fact, no ruler over any people would suggest such a thing. I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, did ever any prince make a law that his subjects should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and great commandment of God's law that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Love him with all of your heart, soul, and might. Um, Moses and God are not calling Israel to splice themselves into three pieces. Your heart's over here, your soul is over here, and your might is over here. And what I want you to do is gather up all of yourself over here and worship me and love me. And then I want you to make sure you gather up all of this part of your soul and worship me and love me. And the same thing with your might. He's saying, I'm going to name you in your totality three different ways. You are an inner man in the heart. You are soul. You are life. You are breath. And you are might. Whatever it is you are, love me with all of it. An all-consuming love. Um, Macintosh helps us understand what strength means. It's not so much a person's physical power as as it is his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith or a love, but that our faith or our love should possess us. If you get the heart, you get the man. If you get the inner part of a man, if you get the inner man as he is before God, you get the entire man. That's what he's after. When you think of the Old Covenant, guys, when you think of Mosaic, because this is Mosaic Covenant, when you think of Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, do you think first about love? When I think of Mosaic Law and Mosaic Covenant, the first thing on my mind is not usually love for that God. But guess what? It was the first thing on his mind. Yahweh's people, Israel, were not guilty before him first and foremost because they didn't keep dietary laws and they they broke social laws and sacrificial laws or they even broke the Ten Commandments. That's not why they were first and foremost guilty. Why are they first and foremost guilty before God? They did not what? Love God. And because they did not love Yahweh, they were unconcerned about his dietary laws. And they were slow to obey sacrificial laws, ceremonial laws, and Ten Commandments. In God's mind, love has always been the issue. In fact, this is the truth, in, you'll see this, this is true in the New Testament as well. The cure for, for, for disobedience must always start with love, addressing love for God. How can you improve upon your obedience to God without fueling your love for God? The closest illustration I can think of in our day that would get this kind of covenant idea um, that would capture that is the covenant of marriage. Um, The marriage covenant is full of vows, right? That two parties pledge to keep, right? Remember this? Those of you who are married, those of you about to get married, will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? And what does each party say? I will. I will. I will. I've, I've done, I can't count how many weddings I've done over the years. I've never heard somebody say, not that one. I'll do the other ones, but not that one. 
both of them are, are, are eager. The husband and the wife are eager. I will, I will, I will, I will. You know what that sounds like to me? A, b- a bunch of laws. A bunch of rules. You guys are going to govern yourselves by a bunch of rules. Why does a bride never hear all of those will use as law? Why is that the first thing on her mind? Well, wait a minute. I've never had a wife or a woman say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is just, what's with all these rules? Do you know why they, they don't hear them that way, first and foremost? Why? Because love is overwhelming them for the other. And so when you have love overflowing from your heart, you'll do anything. Right? So it's a covenant relationship, and there must be rules, and there must be a law, but the primary emphasis and impetus of, those, of obedience to those laws is love. The command from Yahweh to love, it reflects him and his desire for his people. Jesus, a quote from McIntosh is, is down there. Jesus would later insist in John 14, 21. Do you remember what it says? He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who what? Loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and my father and I will make our home with him. Right? Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40 is uh, Jesus explaining again the, the, the two greatest um, Arms of the law, love for God and love for neighbor. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Love is important in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 24. Ephesians closes with this, with Paul saying, those who love our Lord Jesus, love him with an incorruptible love. And then I love John 21, when, when Jesus restores Peter. How many times did Peter fall? Three times. What does Jesus ask Peter three times? Will you obey me now? Is that what he says? What does he say? Do you love me? Why did he say, do you love me? Well, we understand why he said that. Because that's the foundation of a relationship that's on the, based on grace. That's, that's at the foundation of our obedience, is love for Jesus. Jesus knew that if Peter loved him, he would obey. Jesus' disciples could hardly have missed the point of this statement. This is that quote from McIntosh, in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine a rabbi before Jesus saying to his disciples, if you have my commandments and you keep them, you love me. Do you know what they would have done with that rabbi? They would have ran from him or they would have drug him outside the city and they would have stoned him saying, who do you think you are? And yet here is a rabbi asking for the same devotion that Yahweh pleaded for from his people in the Old Testament. All right, back to Deuteronomy 6. Um, Yahweh's people Israel, whose life is bound up in Yahweh, they discover that God has actually given them something, a tool a means by which their love for him can be kept up and can be promoted and nurtured and and it won't wither and undergo decay. Look at verse 6. What is it? It's these words. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. All right, so love me and, and love me where? With all of your heart and these words must be on your heart. So love 
before God from the inner man and God's word upon the inner man. These words, the words must first advance within the heart. Love for God um, must always move the believer to God's word. Guys, if you love Jesus, it will move you towards his word. Love for Jesus will always move you in that direction. It's always been this way. And this is Jesus' intent, that the word of God would always hit the heart. Go to Luke chapter 8. Let me show you a couple of verses here, passages to help you. Luke 8. Here's something that never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Israel to the church. God's intent is that his word for those who love him would always be upon their heart. Luke 8, verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. It's the parable of the seed being sown on the different kinds of soil. And he says in verse 11, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Watch this. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their what? Heart. So the sower's intent is that the seed would get to the heart. And what's the devil's intent? To get that word and take it out of the heart. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while in a time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on the way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the, de- uh, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And they hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. The, the point is the word of God is supposed to be in the heart. Okay, um, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Uh, you remember what the, those disciples who were walking along um, the way to Emmaus, and they said, when he was speaking the word to us, were not our hearts burning as he was speaking that word? Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to penetrate all the way down so that you can judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. The word of God is always intended by God to get to your heart, right? Matthew Henry has this quote. I have it for you there in your notes. God's word must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them, and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of them. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts, both as an evidence of that love and as an effect of that love, and as a means to preserve and increase that love. He that loves God loves his Bible. Okay? Back to Deuteronomy 6. Guys, this is what Discipline 1 is all about. Um, A a spiritual leader in the church is somebody, is a man who constantly brings his heart to the Word of God 
so that God might graciously reveal himself through those words to him. That spiritual leader's love for God gets fanned into a flame there before the word of God. And then that just turns that spiritual leader back again and again to the word so that his love for God might be guided into the proper expressions of obedience. And that goes on day and night, day and night. It doesn't just happen in the mornings or in the evenings before he goes to bed, but it's all throughout the day. Every Christian, every believer is called to this, but especially any man who wants to be a leader in the church, this man must have this discipline down well. He must be exemplary in this. Man, I just want to encourage you, the elders want to encourage you, you you must become that kind of man. The church needs to be filled with men like that. Work on that the rest of your life. Don't put it on cruise control. Don't slip it into neutral. Don't slow down. Don't take your foot off the gas. You pursue that with everything. Become that kind of a man. Let's talk about... Yes. Uh, question for you. Yeah. Is, uh, is there a difference, or does, there, does there need to be a difference between uh, love and affection for the Lord and love and affection for like what He has done uh, in the gospel of mm. Christ? Uh, yeah. yeah, what are you thinking? What, what's on your mind? Um, I guess... Usually it's easy to say, like, I love God, He's so great, so awesome, all the forgiveness that He's granted and given, um, yet still miss the point of, like, enjoying God for mm-hmm. who He is in and of Himself, regardless of salvation. Um, and I don't want to separate it, um, categorize them by any means, but, um, yeah. or, or much, but um, I guess it, it seems as if the call for love is based off of who he is, not necessarily how he interacts with us all the time. Um, mostly to help me in my wanting to desire to obey. Yeah. Like having a desire to obey just because of the person he is. Yeah. Well, I, I, think that's, I think that's an important distinction to make without separating them too far. If, if, a, if a dad um, gave his child a gift... As an, as an expression of his love for that child. And the child ripped the gift out of his hands, went over on the other side of the room and opened it and fixated for the rest of the afternoon on that gift and never said anything to the dad, That's but loved the gift. That's really sad. Um, the other way it should be is he gives, gets the gift, opens it, sets it aside, and just gives his dad a big squeeze. I love you, Daddy. Thank you so much. You're you're the best dad in the whole wide world. There's night and day difference between those two things. So it it is easy to love the benefits that God has brought to us, his gifts, and not love the giver. Um, You should study what he gives, right? You should know what he gives. But the, the gifts reveal something about the giver what kind of a God he is. The fact that you have forgiveness of sin, what does that say about God? God is a forgiving God. He's God. a forgiving God. He's merciful. And since he didn't, doesn't change, he was a forgiving God before there's ever a man to forgive. Before the gift ever came. And any other blessings or providential gifts that you might get in life, you may get none and be in a prison and, and rot in a cold cell with nothing to eat until you die. And you would have 
so much reason to love God if you have his son. So um, the gifts should make you move very quickly to the giver and worship him and love him. Um, How about number three, discipline two? Now, back in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 7, we'll see discipline two, the home. In Israel, these words had to advance beyond the man or the husband or the father or the head of the home to his wife and to his children. Look at verse 7. Teach them, you shall teach those words that I'm commanding you today, teach them diligently to your sons. Teach them diligently. Now there's, there's two ideas uh, that the commentators are kind of split on on what does it mean to teach them diligently. We do know that it has the idea of a sharp tool and a stone in it. And so some think it's the idea of sharpening a knife on a stone. Others think it's the idea of engraving with that sharp iron tool into a stone. And so here are the two different quotes that kind of show you what commentators think might be behind the idea of teach them diligently. The first is by um, Henry, uh, Matthew Henry. Uh, Frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and make them pierce into their hearts as in sharpening a knife as it is turned first this on this side and then on that. So do it diligently in the sense of like you're repeatedly over and over sharpening a knife on stone. It might be that, or it might be the image is that um, of the of the engraver of a monument who takes hammer and chisel and in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. Um, the idea is it's, it's laborious. Don't stop doing this with your sons. Do this over and over, Israel. So, what can we say so far? Think about this. Yahweh's intent for Israel is what? That they were to come into direct contact with Him, the center of their life, in and through His words, which would enable them to pour forth heated love for Him and expressions of obedience. And then those precious words were then to be advanced beyond the man into the household. And you tell me, what kind of a nation would that nation have been? That would have been a stunning nation had it come to fruition in totality. Look what he says in verse 7. Teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you sit and when you walk. Israel... Uh, Look, by the way, notice that that could uh, not be referring to a quiet time. When you sit or when you walk, that's like the activities throughout the day. Right? Israel was upon any occasion within or without the home impress the word of Yahweh on their children. Uh, These are occasions of inactivity when you're sitting and occasions of activity when you are walking. And they also were to do this when you lie down And when you rise up, what is that? Book ends on the day. The day shouldn't begin without these words being impressed upon the household. And the day shouldn't, what did I say, begin? And it shouldn't end without these words being impressed upon the minds. In other words, a man's first and foremost responsibility was to make sure that 
his household understood. Okay? The Israelite was supposed to then even go further. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. We, we don't know exactly what this means, but there was to be something on the, the garment that hung, that reminded them about the word, so that whatever they were doing with their hands, it was like those things were always in the way. It made them think that whenever I use my hands, oh, the, the word of God needs to move these hands, influence these hands. Uh, we got the idea of the frontal on the forehead, maybe a little box that had... The, the, the commands of, of Yahweh upon them so that everywhere they looked there was this constant banging on the head of, of God's word. You, I love this, this quote um, from Macintosh and, and from Spurgeon. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were, to be, they were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with everyday life, routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. And this is what Spurgeon said. You shall see by them. You shall see with them. You shall see through them. You couldn't look at somebody without having to look through God's word hanging from your head. One more thing they were supposed to do, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. Merrill says this, the form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person and his entire family and the community became identified as the people of Yahweh whose word was everywhere. So it's on the doorposts of your house and then it's out on your gate. So you're leaving the house in the morning to go out into the field to work and what's the first thing you see as you leave your house? God's word. You go through the gate. What's the first thing you see as you leave to leave your property and you're going to go interact with other people and do your work? You see the word of God. At the end of the day, you've been working and you come back home. What's the first thing you see before you come into your property? On the gate. God's word. What's the thing you see as you come into your household? God's word. The, the intent by God in all of this is that the man would be influenced by that word all of the time. The household would be overrun by the word of God. Now, we understand, I, I hope, um, God's intent for Israel. Right? These are words that Moses spoke to Israel in the plains of Moab. Now, let's take that and let's put alongside it, briefly, um, what the New Testament also teaches. Okay, So this is now that section in your notes where it says the New Testament teaching on the importance of the home. I'll, I'll go through these quickly because you can spend more time on them on your own. The first thing you need to get is the impact that one person can make on a household. There are, there are multiple examples in the New Testament of how one who comes to faith in, in Jesus changes a whole household. We've seen these in Acts, right? Um, in fact, on, on Sunday, tomorrow, you're going to see the Philippian jailer uh, be changed. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is concerned for his household. Uh, Acts chapter 16, Lydia is concerned for her household. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer is concerned for his household. Um, so one soul is impacted, and then a whole household is impacted. And in fact, I thought about this this morning, guys. Uh, you know how we try to exhort you single guys who either are, if you're out living on your own or if you've got roommates to uh, think about impacting your even your household, don't wait until you're married to think that this applies to you. Uh, Lydia is the example for you. 
not as a woman for a man, but in the sense that she wasn't married, there's no husband involved, and yet she had a household, and she took responsibility for the household, and how shocking it was in that day that a woman would have her own household, that she would even have her own business. The only way she could have her own business is she either inherited it from her father or from her husband. Most likely her husband died. And so now she has this business, and she has a household, and she has influenced the people of her household. Men, if a woman in Greco-Roman society in the first century can do it, I think you can do it. Okay? Make an impact on your household. In the early church, just one person's interaction with the gospel had the potential to make a profound impact on others. Don't miss that that opportunity. Second principle is the attack on the home. I I do want you to look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. very sad Uh, verses 1 to 5 Paul is saying last in these last days difficult times will come watch this here's the explanation why is it going to be difficult men are going to be this way why are they going to be this way and why should you avoid such men like these listed in the first five verses well verse 5 because among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins Women who are led on by various impulses. Women who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the first question you should ask? Where are the men? Where are the men of these households? Go over to Titus chapter 1. Yeah. I would probably ask Smed before I'd ask me, but I, I, I think my there's nothing that would indicate that he wasn't nearby. It's not mentioned. It, I don't think it says he was right there, but I don't think there's anything to indicate that he wasn't. Titus 1. Elder qualifications. Here's, here's verse 9, the last part of the elder qualifications. The man must be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why? Well, on the island of Crete, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And what are they doing? Well, they they must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Um... And note the attack in both cases on this, on the family. It doesn't come from the pagan world or the pagan culture. The attack on the household or on the the family comes from the religious world, the false religious world, trying to blend in with Christianity, with the gospel. So where are the men? In fact, Paul is telling Titus there need to be men in the church called elders who are able to refute with sound doctrine and to take care of error because households are being upset. Now, build up those men as well (laughs) in families. Make sure that the men are what they are supposed to be so that those families are not upset by false teaching. Men, what is the implication for you? You need to be a spiritual blockade for your wife, for your, your, your daughters, for your sons. For anybody in your household, you need to be a spiritual blockade And that means that you're going to have to be able to recognize error when it comes. Right? 
there's an attack on the household. Why is there an attack on the household? Well, I think the devil knows why it's important to God, so he's after the household. First Titus, uh, I'm sorry, First Titus. There's only one Titus. And by the way, those, those verses are, I have 19 to 14. I don't mean for you to read it backwards because it doesn't even go to 19. Mm-hmm. 9 through 14 is what it's supposed to say. That was my bad on that. Titus 1, 9 through 14. How about this next one? The family or the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Something interesting happens in the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus starts talking like, um, I'm going to go through these really fast. If you want to try to turn with me, you can. But, but just listen to these kinds of things. Matthew 10, verse 34 to 39. Um, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, wait a minute. It wasn't supposed to be that way in Israel. He who loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Wow, Jesus like saying, you know, there's families. And I'm going to come and I'm going to be a wedge that comes between some of these members of this family. Uh, same types of things are said in Luke 9. And that second uh, square bullet there. An inordinate love for family will, will keep you from following Jesus. And, and then notice in, in Matthew 12 how Jesus viewed his own family. Do you remember this? While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And Mark's context in Mark chapter 3 is that he had gone another day without eating and everybody was just kept following him and people weren't eating. And it says that his own kind were concerned for him that maybe he had lost his mind. And so his mom and his brothers show up outside the house saying, we got to rescue him. We got to get him out of this situation. This is odd. And so someone said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus answered the one who was telling him. And he said, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, Jesus is saying something important here to put alongside what we've seen in the Old Testament already and what the rest of the New Testament also says. That it's this. It is better to be separated from your family in order to be saved than to stay with your family and perish. Right? And if you're not willing to leave your lost family for Jesus, then you will remain lost. In the New Testament, Jesus here urges us to properly weight the household. There are some Christians who over give the household too much weight. But the New Testament urges us to properly weight the household in relationship to the gospel. We can't conclude from discipline to, from the call to care for the family, that we should set the family higher than it's supposed to be, that whatever the family wants, the family always gets. That's not what we're after. The gospel and fidelity or faithfulness to the gospel is even above your family, guys. Being faithful to the gospel will not lead you to abuse your family or to neglect your family. It will only lead you to care well for your family. But being faithful to the gospel will also keep you from exalting your family higher than it should be. 
Okay? The gospel or your faithfulness to it must come face to face with your family. You must bring your faithfulness to the gospel to bear upon your family. But if your family rejects that gospel and your family is divided, the family unit is to suffer the loss, not your faith in Jesus. Do you understand this? Uh, it's important to try to, to, to get the strike the right balance that the New Testament has on this. There are some Christians who put the family above everything. The family is 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 as as high as the gospel, and the family is the, this exalted thing. Um, well, Jesus came to penetrate families and to save some of them out and away from the family. You bring the gospel to bear on your family. Some some Jesus even told his disciples that. You know, it's going to be your own family that's going to throw you in jail someday. So don't underweight the household. Knowing this does not make us say, oh, turn your back on your family. Don't care for your family. See, that would be an extreme to avoid. The other extreme to avoid is, I can't leave my family. And so I'm going to compromise in the gospel in order to stay with my family. That's wrong. Do you understand? Bring the gospel to bear on your family. Let God do with the family what he's going to do. And you be faithful. Um, Leading a wife, next one, requires a strong grasp on the gospel. I love Ephesians 5, that section. What does that say to men? Husbands, love your wives like what? Like Christ loved the church. And how did he show his love for the church? He gave himself up for her. You know what you need to do as a man, as a married man? is you need to be able to study the the self-giving love of Jesus at the cross from as many different angles as you possibly can. Why? Because that's what fuels your self-giving love for your wife. So you need to be a man who understands the gospel so that you can love your wife in a self-giving way as Jesus loved the church. There's a New Testament model for marriage to look at. It's um, Priscilla and Aquila. Let's look at these real quick. These are these are fun to look at. Look at Acts 18. I love this about them. We're introduced in Acts 18 to them. Verses 1 to 3. After these things, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and they were tent makers together. They were the same trade together. Um, look at cha- uh, verses 24 and 20 to 28 in the same chapter. Uh, this is the story of Apollos. You remember what happened? This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he was being fervent in, speak- in spirit. He was speaking and teaching things accurately uh, concerning Jesus. But he was acquainted only with the baptism of John and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue and Priscilla and Aquila are sitting there going, oh, he, he, he needs some help. He needs to have some ideas completed for him. And notice that Priscilla is mentioned first. Um, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They're, they're laboring together, this husband and wife, in the gospel. Go to the end of Romans when Paul mentions them again. Uh, I love this about them. Romans chapter 16, verses 3 to 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila. It's a shortened form of her name. And notice who's mentioned first again. <laughs> She must have made an impact on Paul. And not to say that Aquila 
was a slouch or anything like that, but, but she was somebody special. She had marked herself out for him to mention her twice and for Luke as well to do that. Greet my fellow workers in Christ who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So they had a, a congregation within their home. They were involved in the gospel together. Find a way to, to do ministry together with your wife at whatever capacity you are able to and whatever capacity your wife is able to. Do not assume that your wife has the same capacity for ministry that you do. Some of your wives are more hungry for ministry than you are. You'll need to help figure out how to do that. Some wives don't have as much time to give the ministry as you think you have time to give because they're fixed on so much in the home. You're going to have to know your wife well and work through those things. But that's a model marriage there for you to look at. And then just the qualifications back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's finish there. Just trying to give you a survey of, of what the Bible teaches concerning the household. Um, verse 2, an, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Um, you have the uh, same thing given in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, and in verse 8. Um, so you can't ignore your household, guys. This is what men, unfortunately, do far too often is they leapfrog over their household and do ministry and then they get elevated in ministry and there's been a a train wreck slowly occurring silently behind them in the household and the next thing you know, the household is, is, is obliterated and anything that the man stood on in public ministry is gone. There's even very fresh examples of that today in our valley, right? So the, the focal point from the beginning, as soon as Moses could instruct the people, he's telling them the household, the household, but not without you being the right kind of man at the heart level. Impact your household. You get into the New Testament and you have to think carefully about the household. Bring the gospel to bear on your household. But if the family won't accept it, the family has a, a degree of disjointedness to it. Do not compromise the gospel for the family, but care for the family. Bring your heart to bear on the family. If they throw you in prison and turn you into the authorities, so be it. Love your family with the gospel. But don't play leapfrog over the household. Qualification for ministry comes not by leapfrogging it or going around your household, but it comes through being faithful in your household. Okay? All right. That is an overview of... Uh, of what Discipline 2 is all about. Shepherd your heart to the Word of God, to meet with the God of the Word, to be a man marked out by love for Him in the Word of God, and then impact your household. We'll spend a a few more Saturdays on this um, together in the coming weeks and um, try to press this down in us a little bit more. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for all there is. Lord, having to rush so fast through this, I want to just slow down. I want to be able to think about this. Lord, would you help these men to soak in this in the days and the weeks to come, the months, for the rest of their lives um, so that they will think carefully about the household, being well informed from your your word, what you say about the household. Lord, may they think thoughts that are about it that are pleasing to you. 
Give them courage to step into their homes with love for you and with your word oozing from them at every pore. Change their households because you are changing them. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you men so much for coming.